Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Jewish life in Belarus fundamentally changed after 1917 as Jews joined the Bolshevik movement and were active in the front lines of revolutionary transformation. As my guest, Andrew Sloin, shows, Jewish artisans were swept up willingly or otherwise, into the Bolshevik project. Their experiences demonstrate how the relationship between Bolshevik ideology, economy, and identity racially marked Jews as party officials grappled with the Jewish question in the wake of the revolution. So what was the Jewish revolution? How did it ebb and flow with the larger revolutionary changes in Soviet society? Andrew Sloin is an associate professor of history at Baruch College, specializing in Russian, East European, Soviet, and Jewish history. He's the author of The Jewish Revolution in Belarusia, Economy, Race, and Bolshevik Power, published by Indiana University Press. Here's Andrew Sloin. Okay, so uh, I thought we'd start by just just having you introduce yourself. My name is Andrew Sloan. I'm an associate professor of history and Jewish studies at uh, Brook College, City University of New York, and I'm currently a member of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, and I'm uh, the author of The Jewish Revolution in Belarus, Economy, Race, and Bolshevik Power, uh, published by Princeton uh, by, Indiana, by Indiana University in 2017. Um, and I work on Soviet, Jewish, and European history. So uh, let's let's get into your your book, uh, the Jewish Revolution in Belarus: Economy, Race, and Bolshevik Power, which examines the the revolutionary transformation that of Jewish life in Belarus after 1917. So I, th- I wanted to ask you to start off with is to have you explain what do you mean by Jewish revolution? Sure. Well, obviously, 1917 is known for the the. Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, but what I argue in the book is that in, in the course of the revolution, the revolution really opened up space for a transformation within Jewish uh, political, cultural, and social life that was really driven by below, from below by actors who were traditionally excluded from the, the Jewish community, so uh, or not excluded from the Jewish community, but marginalized within the Jewish community, particularly people like the the uh, Jewish art, the very large Jewish artisanate who. Um, who became politically active in the course of the revolution and pushed, used the space opened by the revolution to push for a thoroughgoing transformation of Jewish life, which from what they, from their perspective, what they thought they were doing was really, I think, um, overturning all of the old elites, the uh, the old old leaders and old politics of the Jewish community and pushing for a, a radical reorientation of, of a form of Jewish life that would be compatible and uh, and in some sense in sync with the revolution, but not simply dictated from above. So what I try to stress in the book is that this revolution was obviously brought from the outside. It started in in, in Petersburg and in Moscow, but it really, it was an internal process that was driven as much by local dynamics in, Bel- in Belarus and in the centers, the Jewish centers of Belarus as, as uh, it was imposed from without. So what was Jewish life like prior to 1917 that would need to be, from their perspective, these activists' perspective, need to be overturned and transformed? Well, Jewish life, I mean, traditionally, if one thinks of what Jewish life in the Pale Settlement, which the territories of present-day Belarus were very much ensconced in the, in the Pale Settlement, the old Pale Settlement, the region which Jews were legally bound to reside, 
the traditional, traditionally, before um, reforms of the mid-19th century, Jewish life had been organized through um, religious institutions, first and foremost, the rabbinate and the and religious leaders, and, and also uh, respected elders of the community. There was an institution called the Kahal, which was sort of an institution of Jewish self-government. And these types of institutions had pretty much um, uh, govern Jewish life autonomously within the construct of the Russian Empire for most of the of the modern period, uh, and this was a system that was in charge not simply of local administration, like uh, burial and marriage uh, approval and whatnot, and religion being in charge of religious institutions and religious holidays and whatnot, but also had uh, the kahal had responsibility for. Taxation, and even after the kahal was disbanded, the community had had responsibilities for taxation. But traditionally, power within the community and authority within the community resided within the traditional elites, whether they were religious elites or elites of wealth. And so, when the revolution came in the name of establishing workers' power, this was obviously a, a, a workers' power that was also secularly oriented, was anti-clerical, etc., and so forth. This constituted a fundamental. Uh, challenge to the old elites, but it also gained rather widespread support on various uh, street, various Jewish streets within within the many uh, cities and towns of Belarusia. Uh, which is, of course, not to say that all Jews supported the revolution in this moment. In fact, Jews were quite ambivalent about the Bolshevik cities, not necessarily the revolution. And Jews had their own institutions of pol political institutions for decades prior to the revolution. Um, so there, um, so in, in this sense, when the revolution came, it really did bring in a whole group of, of Jews who had just been uh, on the on the margins of, of social life. What's interesting uh, also about the the Jewish population in Belarus is that it it has some distinct qualities from other parts of the Pale of Settlement, particularly Ukraine and Poland. Um, what were some of those qualities about the Jewish population in Belarus uh, before 1917 that made them distinct from, say, Ukraine and Poland? Yeah, it, it's a very peculiar region because, in some ways, before 1917, it was really the backwater. It was, it was, uh, it was. Um, Belarus was not necessarily a center of great religious learning, although there were some some yeshivas that were very important, and it was it was very much a. a mediating point between uh, for trade and and for um, exchange and commerce but Jewish life was marked for the most part for for its in some sense uh, lack of lack of real um, of real let's say uh, cosmopolitanism I would I would say but at the same time what was very distinctive I mean what was distinct about the Jewish population of Belarus first and foremost was the fact that so many of the Jews of Belarus learned were artisans and in fact Jews constituted about three quarters of the artisanate of all of of uh, the regions of Belarus at the time of the revolution in contrast to you to say Ukraine for example they're mostly living in living in urban areas yeah well and even in Ukraine there's high degrees of urbanization but Belarus is one of the most highly highly urbanized uh, populations for Jews in in the entire form of settlements uh, in Jews constitute about 10 percent of the, the population uh, in Belarus at the end of the 19th century about eight percent time of the revolution um, and, or by 1926 but they but they were they constituted in cities, in the towns and cities of, of Belarus, they constitute, for the most part, either majorities or pluralities in all of the major cities and towns. And when we talk about major cities, I mean, keep in mind that in 1926, Minsk had 90,000 people. So it's not, everything is relevant. But, um, and so, and this, this also inflected the sort of character of the region. It was, it was a place that was dotted with the shtetlich, the small towns that were, that were sort of typical of Jewish life. But, one of the things that really characterized Belarusian, the experience in Belarus for Jews was really the absence of mass violence in the way that mass violence sort of permeated Ukrainian Jewish life from the end of the 19th century through the revolutions of 1905-1917. Not to say that there wasn't mass violence and pogroms in, in Belarus, there were, but they were far more diminished, they were far diminished in relation to what was going on in Ukraine. So there, it was in some sense a place where Jews had lived with a relative degree of tolerance and acceptance for 
really for a very long period of time before the revolution. So they didn't enter, uh, the revolution didn't quite open up the same types of, initially, the same types of intra national hostilities that it did in other parts of the empire. Yeah, yeah, I was really surprised to learn this. I didn't know this. Um, well, how do you explain the the lack of comparable violence that you find in, in other parts of the pale? It, it's a really, it's kind of a puzzle. I think that part of it has to do with the fact that the artisan, the Jewish artisan was so large and so consequently they were so embedded within, uh, within social life. And at the same time, whereas in Ukraine where Jews, a lot of Jews tended to be uh, prior to the revolution, in, in earlier periods, had been in mediating roles on estates as sort of mediators between the old nobility and the Ukrainian peasantry. Jews didn't quite play the same type of um, mediating role that they did in parts of Ukraine, which made them quite vulnerable when the revolution broke out. And the other thing, I mean, the other, I think, critical answer to that question is that if you look at where, where pogroms and where the real violence breaks out in 1905 in, in, in Ukraine, it's in the regions that are rapidly industrializing, industrializing around the Donuts Basin, and it's in regions right. where workers are really coming into conflict with Jews as merchants and Jews as other competitors and artisans. And so there is the, the factor of, of mass rapid industrialization is driving that violence, I would argue, in those regions, whereas Belarus is, in some sense, it's industrialized insofar as there's a lot of light industry, but it's not a center of heavy industry. And in fact, the industries are overwhelmingly Jewish, insofar as they are light industries, and they are the typical what we refer to or thought of as the canonical Jewish industries: textile, shoe making, leather making, etc., and so forth, woodworking. And so, consequently, the intra um, sort of uh, worker conflicts that drove violence in other places were, for a large part, diminished in Belarus in those territories. So, an another interesting aspect about Belarus um, is that there were so few industrial workers in general and of course almost no Bolsheviks. So how did how did the Bolsheviks gain support amongst Jews in, in Belarus? Well that's a that's a really great question. I would say the answer is they did it very slowly. Um, in, in fact when the revolution broke out, Jews again were very were were I mean not some Jews were enthusiastic. The number of Bolsheviks in general were very small and the number of Jews within within that that uh, group even smaller. Uh, but for the most part, Jews had voted in the in the elections for the um, constituent assembly. They had elected. They had uh, voted overwhelmingly for general Zionist parties. The the regions of Belarus had always been. They were one of the first centers of the Jewish Socialist Bund, which was a political party that was extremely uh, powerful in the region and remained powerful. And also that it was a center of the coalition. Uh, labor Zion, Zionist movement as well. So there was a large left-wing presence before the revolution. When the revolution came, really the task for uh, the Bolsheviks was to gain support in in the regions of Belarus outside of the army. And in, actually, in the Constituent Assemblies of 19, uh, 1917, one of the defining aspects of Belarus, it's one, of, it's one of the few regions of the Russian Empire which voted overwhelmingly for the Bolsheviks in 1917, because primarily the, arm, the right army was stationed all throughout the region. Um, but the, Jew, the, the Jewish population was extremely ambivalent, and they uh, took to they, a lot of members of the Bund in particular were adamantly anti-Bolshevik. They had been for a long time, and what happens over the course of the revolution after 1917 is the Bolsheviks. You can see in there really after 1918, 1920, when the when the Red Army comes back, you can see the party trying to figure out how to win over the Jewish population. And the key to that really becomes winning over those elements of the Bund who are persuadable. And so yeah. what ends up happening is that a large number of former Bundists and, and, end up uh, going over to the Bolsheviks over the course of the revolution and the, very, the civil war and the various wars that followed. And I mean, one point that should be made, obviously, is that you know, the role of the Bolsheviks in and one of the, the, the strongest things that the Bolsheviks did in terms of gaining Jewish support was simply in defending Jews from, from violence and from, from pogrom, pogromists. And so consequently, when the Red Army, the Red Army was seen, even though, as someone like Brendan McGeever has shown, the Red Army was itself had its own moments of anti-Semitic violence. But for the most part, the Red Army was, was, was really, and the Bolsheviks became the anti-anti-anti-Semitic uh, party and really the party for Jewish integration in the context of the revolution, particularly as the white movement and the anti-revolutionary movement became increasingly anti-Semitic. So 
On that level, the Bolsheviks gain support simply for being the, the defenders, legitimately, I think, defenders of Jewish integration and, and equality. What about Bolshevik nationality policy and, and, and how did that, did that appeal to, to Jews who are more nationally conscious? And, and how did that square with, say, some of the more Zionist wing? Yeah, well, Bolshevik nationality policy is obviously complicated in, the, in all spheres, but in the Jewish sphere, because in, in some ways, the, the question of what the Bolsheviks understood as being acceptable nationality is really differed quite, uh, quite dramatically from the dominant, what might say, nationalist movement in the Jewish community, which was the Zionist movement. But from the, from, in the aftermath of the revolution, the Bolsheviks formed a number of institutions, most notably the Jewish section of the Communist Party of Belarus, the Yusexia, which was um, which was charged with the task of, on one hand, fighting or combating anti-revolutionary uh, tendencies within the Jewish community, but really was also charged with the construction and the creation of new institutions for Bolshevik Jewish life that were tied to the to the program, particularly in the mid 1920s, of national self-promotion and national uh, national strengthening. So there was a real effort on the part of the Bolsheviks to, obviously. Um, uh, encourage acceptable nationality among all members of the of the Soviet Union, but within the Jewish context, there was a there was a concerted effort to both draw Jews into the revolution through cultural through cultural um, cultural autonomy and, and and national autonomy, but also um, a real a realization that. To, for the revolution to be successful, it needed to resolve the fundamental international tensions between populations and the types of ethnic and racial violence that had sort of that had blown up in World War One, but continued to uh, percolate and and explode throughout the Russian Empire and after the revolution. Now, it, d- despite the the efforts, of course, of of the Bolsheviks to to protect Jewish life, Jews nonetheless presented a right because of the anti Semitic tropes attached to them within the you know tradition of the Russian Empire. Um, they posed a, a a difficult negotiation ideologically, and in in one sense, like in this, in in your discussion about speculation, for example, which is a, a main ideological issue for the Bolsheviks in the nineteen twenties. Um, you make a really uh, interesting observation when it comes to Belarusian Jews. You write that if in contemporane- contemporaneous European right-wing discourse, race frequently served as a mechanism for discussing economy, in the left-wing discourse of the Soviet Union in the 1920s, economy increasingly came to serve as a mechanism for discussing race. This is, a, I found this a really interesting, you know, uh, flipping of the way these things work. Uh, what do you mean by this, this statement? Thanks. That, that's actually, I mean, I, I really, um, I feel like that's kind of in some ways at, at the heart of, uh, an idea that's at the heart of the book, which is that, I mean, I, I want, I, I feel like in order to sort of think about this, this phenomenon of the Soviet Jewish experience, period, full stop, but also the Belarusian Jewish experience, one has to think of it in a global context that is that is being delineated and defined by the emergence of fascism. And obviously within fascist and particularly within Nazi discourse, uh, race plays a central, a very central role, particularly for the Nazis. However, race is never simply about race, and particularly if you look at Nazi tropes, the, the one of the critical and central aspects is what I would argue the, the Ideological biologization of economy, whereby I mean that that the that the, for the from the standpoint of the Nazis, the, the phenomenon of capitalism was itself bifurcated. There was a, a conception whereby uh, the the, um, the industrial economy was understood to be productive, healthy, vital, and fundamentally Aryan, whereas the uh, the the realm of financial capital or finance capital was seen as being um, unhealthy, parasitic, and obstructing of, of industrial growth, and fundamentally Jewish. And that dichotomy comes through repeatedly in, in uh, Nazi ideology, but particularly in the aftermath of the onset of the global crisis, where what ends up happening is economy is read through racial, is, is read through racial lenses. In the Soviet context, it's in, it, rhetorically, it's the exact opposite. The, the Soviets are fundamentally, they fundamentally reject racial ideologies uh, rhetorically. They um, you know, refer to, you know, refer to racial thought as zoological thinking. 
And yet, um, at the same time, and, and ostensibly, the totality of the system is predicated on the idea that there are social, there are, there are mutual social and economic categories that will define the system. So what matters are the, the ostensibly mutual categories of labor, proletariat, capital, etc., and so forth. What I try to show in the book is that from the very outset of the revolution, all of these ostensibly mutual categories are inflected and laden with ethnicized and, and increasingly racial meanings from the outset of the revolution. And that, that intensifies over the course of the 1920s as the Soviet Union itself experiences increasing economic shocks uh, and, and successive economic shocks and crises to the point that ultimately when these, when these crises set in, they are increasingly read as a phenomenon that is being uh, that is ultimately um, that is that is neutral in in its cause, but ultimately is increasingly attributed to the malicious actions of uh, uh, of Jewish agents, particularly, for example, like speculators who are seen as as a, um, a malignant form of traitors in the context of constructing a socialist economy. Right, right. I mean, so much so if you look at, you know, representations of the Netmen in the 1920s, they're overwhelmingly playing on Jewish tropes uh, of, you know, racial, you know, racial and ethnic features. Sure. And what's interesting is that you see this in the Yiddish press as well. I mean, in, in, in the Yiddish press, it's sort of serving a didactic function, I think, because there, the, clearly the target audience are young Jews who have gone over to the Bolsheviks. And so you see these philotones and these stories over and over again about the sort of Malignant intentions of the of the of the private traders and the Jew, and it's always seen as a Jewish phenomenon that is being that is taking place in the shuttles that's being that's in close cahoots with the rabbis and the and the Zionists and the anti-revolutionary movement. So it's not simply a, a non-Jewish phenomenon; it is universally, in some sense, being inflected in these categories. It, now, another uh, uh, ideological problem is the fact that, as you mentioned a bit ago, that um, Jews in Belarus were uh, made up high percentage of, of light industry and, and were artisans. And this poses a, a bit of a problem ideologically in, in the Bolshevik system because the, the, the status of a good Soviet citizen increasingly becomes tied to being an industrial laborer. So how did Jewish artisans fit themselves into the, this category of a good Soviet citizen? It was a struggle. And, and from the outset of the revolution, it was a struggle because, of course, from the standpoint of the work of Jewish workers themselves, they saw themselves as proletarians and as the closest thing to a proletariat when the revolution came. So consequently, a lot of them were quite enthusiastic about that aspect of the revolution. But, it, but from a canonical Marxian uh, narrative, they were not quite proletarians insofar as while some were wage laborers, many were artisans who produced for uh, on contract or they produced for um, for a specific order. Uh, some were, pri they were all privately owned, very small shops, so they didn't fit the canonical conception of sort of the hammer-wielding proletariat. And in, while some of the of people working in, you know, shoemakers in the same industry, some could be in, uh, in, Shops that were state that were state workshops, and consequently they were, were brought into the unions and became, in some sense, ensconced as proletarian labor. But many Jews ended up as these as these sort of um, private kustari who were or college producers who were just producing on the side, and and in increasingly large numbers of Jews are producing in this form as college producers because it's so necessary for the NEP economy because they need to fill the the goods vacuum and its Jewish producers and artisans who are producing clothes and light industry and so forth. And these workers, a lot of them are ostensibly politically on the outsides because they aren't union members. They face a lot of hostility from the unions. And so consequently, what they really have to do is to organize politically to gain representation, which they do by doing things like, you know, showing up unannounced at union meetings and Entering into uh, their, you know, 1927 with the 10th anniversary of the revolution, there's a big celebration in Mint, and a whole bunch of Pustari just show up uninvited and start marching in the parade, demanding that 19, 1917 for the Pustari, in some sense. So there's these moments where Jew, where they where they have to sort of Jewish workers have to push to be included and to be recognized as proletarians, precisely because of the fact that they are in sectors of the industry that of industry that are seen as being non-vital, non-heavy industry, et cetera, and so forth. What is the Jewish question? And and I ask this because before the revolution, there, the Jewish question has a very long history. 
Um, what is it in the Soviet context, and and how is it a continuation or or, or break from the Jewish question before this the revolution? I think I mean I, I, as you said, the Jewish question has a, has a long history and many permutations. I would really sort of date the modern iteration from the the eighteen seventies on, but it really is a question about the 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 place and the position of Jews within the body politic, whether they are going to, what is going, how you're going to resolve the phenomenon of Jewish uh, presence, number one, Jewish representation and over-representation in different industries, in different professions, et cetera, and so forth. Really, how are you going to deal with, the, with, with Jews in the society? And there have been many responses, a cult, from acculturation and assimilation to exclusion or quota systems, as we see in the Russian Empire, or to, I mean, exclusion and ultimately, if you take it to the extreme, uh, mass annihilation in the context of Nazi Germany and other places. Um, in the context of the Soviet Union, obviously, it's very, it's very fraught because on one hand, the Soviet Union positions itself as being anti-anti-Semitic from the outset. They outlaw anti-Semitism um, after the revolution, very famously. And, and rhetorically, the Soviet Union really never wavered from that position. However, within the context, what I try to show in the book is that despite that, that, that commitment to anti-Semitic politics and anti-racist politics, the Soviet Union, over the course of the 1920s, particularly with the turn to the Stalin Revolution, but even before, pursues economic policies that are fundamentally intensifying tensions between ethnic populations, and particularly the working class. And what this ultimately means is that over the course of the 1920s, the place of Jews in Soviet society, which had seemed to be quite non-problematic in 1917 in the direction, in the direction of integration, becomes increasingly fraught, particularly from below, as you get lots of um, groups who, or lots of individuals who, uh, there's just sort of, um, by the late 1928-1929, there's kind of a mass spontaneous uh, anti-Semitic moment in Belarusia, in which kind of um, breaks out seemingly out of nowhere and really um, gains a lot of traction in the in the particularly in workshops across the across the republic, and it leads to extreme consternation and anxiety on the part of the party, which begins to by 1928 1929 really ramp up a new political campaign against anti-Semitism to try to stamp out these uh, this renewed Jewish question. But at the same time, the party itself is pretty. Ambivalent, and one could suggest that it, uh, that you know, in the in the attacks on anti-Semitism, the party simultaneously is sort of deciding what is and what is not anti-Semitism, because the party itself has been questioning different categories of Jews. There is in nineteen twenty-six, there is a massive anti-Bundism campaign where former members of the Bund, who had joined the party in nineteen seventeen to nineteen twenty nineteen twenty-one are systematically seen as being politically unreliable for a variety of reasons. The whole, there's a whole conversation about what Bundism is and how it relates to Jewish national chauvinism. And a large number of Jews who had entered into the revolution in 1917, are, or in the aftermath of 1917, are systematically uh, reviewed and purged out of the party over the course of the 1920s. That said, the party is not adopting an anti-Semitic position because it ultimately is replacing these Jews with new younger Jews who had not experienced those pre-revolutionary politics who were sort of brought into the Soviet system. So Jewish, I mean, ultimately, if, the, if part of solving the Jewish question is in the Soviet context is to try to solve the, the disproportionate representation of Jews in Soviet institutions, which Jews are really overrepresented, statistically speaking, from the outside of the revolution, uh, in, in some ways, the, the Soviets try to resolve this question mathematically by, by ultimately adopting an integrationist position that involves a sort of unspoken quota system. So Jewish, Jewish, Jewish membership in the Communist Party sort of ultimately is weaned down to about a quarter of the Communist Party in Belarus, and there's an attempt to sort of normalize the Jewish population by normalizing their, their representation in society. I'm Mark Galliotti from the United Kingdom, and you're listening to the SRB podcast. I listen to the podcast because instead of sound bites, we get interesting people with the time to say interesting things. Another, of course, issue is is the 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 move against Trotskyism in in the mid the late 1920s, and particularly against the United Opposition as a you know political force or quasi political force or or an imagined political force, depending on where you stand. Um, talk about this relationship between Jews and Trotskyism. 
uh, and how it plays out in, in the campaign against you know, the United Opposition in Belarus? Yeah, this was one of the most fascinating things that I found when I was doing. I mean, I remember the, like opening the, the files and looking at the, the, the anti-Trotsky uh, files because I, I'd always had this association, or in some sense, this sort of intuitive association that there were a lot of Jews in the Trotskyist opposition, uh, as there, there were in, in theory, but particularly uh, among the intellectuals. But there was never a sense of, I mean, there was always just, there's a sort of commonsensical understanding that this is uh, perhaps as a result of ethnic solidarity or something along these lines. But what I found to be quite fascinating about the case in Belarus was when I looked through these files is that, yes, about a large, somewhere well north of 80% of those who are excluded for Trotskyism in the party are, are Jews. But what's interesting about them is that they are also simultaneously overwhelmingly workers from the bench and workers from industries like the light industry, uh, the textile industry, shoemaker industries, and whatnot, who over the course of the 1920s are, are subject to increasingly uh, intensified efforts to increase productivity and different measures to increase productivity and to simultaneously drive down wages and to try to, in some sense, um, intensify industrial output with the onset of the Stalin Revolution. And really from the 19, late 1920s, 1926, a lot of, 27, as the NEP economy is beginning to, in some sense, crash, uh, there are, is, there's increasing agitation from these light industrial sectors in particular because they feel like they're being squeezed and they're really, they're resisting on eco economistic grounds and the state and the party begin to accuse these populations of basically um, these groups of being supporters of Trotsky, which many of them are not. I mean, Trotsky was in, was seen historically in the Jewish community, particularly from old Bundes, as being an enemy. Like he, like Trotsky was was very critical of the Bund, and even if he had, I mean, I'm sure there was a large degree of ethnic solidarity, but he was not seen necessarily as a friend of the Jewish working class. But over the course of the 1920s, in, his, in the competition with Stalin and the attempt to wrest power, he really makes this turn to try to win over the working class by pushing for wage increases, by pushing for uh, reductions of labor time, et cetera, and so forth. And um, this, I, I think, if we look at what, who the Jews are, not simply that Jews are, are sort of becoming Trotskyists, but socially, their positionality is, is very much um, the, the, the gravity, the, Point of gravitation is within these light industries that are really being run over in the process of Stalinist industrialization. And they ultimately, I mean, to be fair, a large number of these people become outspoken Trotskyists. Whether or not they start off as such, they really sort of gravitate into that position as they feel like they're really being attacked by the states. And in the way, like, uh, you know, anti-Trotsky campaign works out on the ground, was, was there also elements of anti-Semitism with it in the sense of, well, Trotsky's Jewish, uh, Jew, and therefore these are Jews, and therefore they, they're, you know, Trotsky's a Jew, and therefore Jews are Trotskyists. Does it, does this work as well? It increasingly becomes, becomes that, um, and what you see is really a, a, a sense in which by the end of the night, by 1928-1929, when the campaign is pretty much ended, and when Trotsky is you know, driven out of the party, the, his followers are increasingly um, either reprimanded or driven out of the party. There, in these debates on the shop floor, you see frequent reference to the idea that Trotsky is you know, the king of the Jews and that Jews support him because of, for, for these region, reasons. But at the at the same time, I mean, you get these you get Jews who are who are arguing this as well, and you also get um, you get surprisingly sophisticated debates also from people who are um, who are quite critical of of Trotskyism without reference to the Jewish Jewish nature of the opposition. So. It's not uniform, but certainly one finds it in, in, these, in yeah. these debates. You mentioned a few. I want you to talk a bit more about this anti-Semitic, anti-anti-Semitism campaign uh, in the late 1920s. I mean, I remember when I was doing research in the Komsomol, it came up in a, in a variety of places. Uh, so how does, how does this campaign against anti-Semitism uh, 
fit within the 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 general atmosphere of the cultural revolution of the first five year plan. It's very paradoxical. I mean, in, in some ways, the the um, the anti anti semitism campaign again is is launched. Well, it, 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 there are can, there are earlier campaigns, or there there's a sort of rhetoric throughout the 1920s opposed to anti semitism, but really by 1927 1928. Uh, there are a series of anti-Semitic events in Belarus. In particular, there's this one event at what at the Oktober, uh glassmaking factory outside of um, uh, Babrusk, and it is this event where there's a young woman, Jewish woman, who is attacked repeatedly by uh, other workers and basically sexually assaulted in in this factory, and it finally breaks through in the newspapers, and it leads really to a sort of it's, it becomes a Soviet-wide issue, and this is really one of the trigger points. Yeah, this is the way these things happened, actually. You'd get a, an incident, and it'd be in the newspapers, and next thing you know, it's a campaign. Yeah, and that is exactly what happens here, and it becomes like a cause celebre. And there, and so all there are factory meetings all um, throughout Belarus, but they're, they're, it's very clear that they see it as a social problem because they're only having factory meetings. They're only having meetings in certain factories, but nevertheless, they um, what what ends up happening. Um, is that there is a, a massive campaign on the part of the state because I think that they see it as a genuine, as a genuine political threat, and I think, that, and obviously in the context of, of rising fascism outside of the Soviet Union, there is a lot of reason to see it as such. Um, but it's a very ambivalent, um, it's a very ambivalent moment because at the same time as the Soviet Union, as the the party is carrying out this massive campaign against anti-Semitism. In 1929, it's, it's shutting down the synagogues. The Bundes have already been purged out of the party. The Trotskyists have been seen, have been sort of vilified and driven out of the party. And and so many different, even though the party is defending Jews in the abstract, it is repeatedly targeting uh, concrete manifestations of non-acceptable Jewishness in the in um, on the street in reality. So it's a very conflicted moment, but it's one. Um, I would say that the entirety of the history of the Soviet relationship to its Jewish population is a pretty conflicted moment. So on that level, um, it, it's somewhat par for the course. And, and what does the campaign like look like? Uh, you know, okay, granted, there's a media campaign. There's these, there's uh, meetings discussing, trying to tell workers, you know, anti-Semitism is bad. This is what it is, et cetera, et cetera. Are there efforts, are there, do you get a sense of increased party expulsions based on anti-Semitism or some kind of chauvinism against Jews? Yeah, there are, there are party, there are expulsions. Usually what, what, uh, what takes place is that there's an incident. So something happens on the shop floor and then the party comes in and they get very involved and they hold a meeting. And what is interesting in the context of these meetings is that there's a script that obviously the, the workers are supposed to follow, and occasionally you see them follow the script. But what increasingly happens, particularly after the October affair and after the sort of cause celebre, there's a lot of pushback. And you see that some of the most fascinating uh, meetings of this variety are meetings where you have different shops that are, there's like the Divina Linen shop where there's an incident, there's, there's sort of an altercation between a Jewish and non-Jewish worker, and they begin to have this meeting, and they have a mass meeting, and it's filled. And then the workers start basically saying, there's nothing to this, this always goes on. And they start sort of pushing against it, and then they, a lot in a lot of places, you see the sort of counter-accusation that all of this is basically a result of the initial cause is Jewish chauvinism. Jews are excluding right. other populations. So it becomes a really kind of, when you get into the nitty-gritty of these campaigns, it becomes quite... Um, quite ugly in, in many respects because you see this moment where what is supposed to be a sort of campaign to uh, enlighten populations about the dangers of racism becomes in, in some ways an avenue for workers to articulate the, the views that they've had and perhaps have not felt comfortable sharing before that moment. And in some ways it's provoking anti-Semitism or the outbursts of anti-Semitism, which then in some cases leads to the expulsion of people from, from factories or from from the party. In many cases, it doesn't. It leads to, so it, it's it's a lot of um, thunder and and um, a lot of storm and drawing, I suppose, but there's, as yeah. far as the actual, um, there are very high profile arrests and, and incarcerations, uh, particularly the people who are responsible for the for the attacks in the Octavio factory, they're all, the seven people or so are put on trial and, and they're given sentences from five years to two years or whatnot. But ultimately, 
um, the rhetoric—it's—it's it's the rhetoric and the rhetorical, uh, the rhetorical dimension that has the most consequence. I would, support, I would argue. I, I want to go back to the issues of 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 race and nationality because I would imagine, you know, these this anti-Semitic campaign and, and the, the atmosphere that it creates on the shop floor, you you really can see how ideas of Jewishness come out in a variety of ways and 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 issues of, of course, race. Um, and I want to point to another, something interesting that you wrote. You write that despite the real and serious commitment to the politics of equality, anti-racism and internationalism, the so- social and economic policies embraced by the Soviet state serve to reproduce the conditions and logics of race socially. Can you elaborate on this issue of what, of what this this logics of race and how it was concretized into the 1930s? Yeah, it, it's uh, in, in some ways, I, I mean, there, there's one conception of race which just basically sees race as an existing fact that ultimately people are biologically, dip- I don't know how, how these logics go, right? But ultimately, this, yeah. this, from a standpoint of a sort of sociological conception of what race does, I think that someone like Stuart Hall is very useful for thinking about race as, as something that, that is articulated in particular social contexts in particular moments that does work in a particular moment. And in this context, what's, what's interesting to me is why is it the case that this outbreak of anti-Semitism sort of emerges simultaneous to the onset of the Stalin revolution. And what you see in, in what is, is um, you see in all these factories, when you, in all these places, in these sites of anti-Semitism, when you look at the reports that are coming in and the different reports, it is a repeated story over and over again of the increasing um, dominate, social domination on the workforce. On the, on the work floor and economic domination where there are sort of abstract factors that are driving, well, there's, there's the political factors of the party, but there are also abstract economic factors of a kind of global crisis that's emerging that the Soviet Union is also dealing with, that the, resp- the Soviet response is to try to intensify production and to massively increase output and to simultaneously, I mean, effectively slash wages for everyone, but, you know, the working class is, the wages of the working class are pretty much driven down by half over the course of the Stalin Revolution. And you see, so you see repeatedly in, in these, in these, um, in this context of austerity and crisis management, the increasing, uh, the increasing scarcity of resources and the increasing uh, sort of tribalization of labor forces as they're fighting over those, those resources. And at the same time, there's just a sense that the demands of productivity are increasingly being ratcheted up for reasons that are, in some sense, inexplicable. The party claims to be a workers' party, but it's in some sense throwing the burden of industrialization onto the working class. And in this moment, I would say the the spirit seems to be quite evocative of what's happening across Europe, where the working class, in some sense, seems sees itself losing its position and, in some sense, being run over by the crisis, and simultaneously is looking for explanations, and in this case, right. in the Soviet context, the one group that seems to be benefiting and the one group that seems to be, in some sense, being integrated in these moments and really seems to be uh, having the revolution fulfill its promises are Jews who are, who are entering into the shop floor in a way that they haven't. So I think it's producing a, a tremendous degree of resentment on the part of, of non-Jewish workers who are simultaneously, in some sense, attacking Jews as a concrete manifestation of what's really an abstract process. They're, they're, right. they're being run over by the process of Stalinist industrialization, but the Jews seem to be, and seem to be, I would emphasize, right? It seemed to be the, the representatives of that system on the, on the factory shop floor. And so consequently, they're very vulnerable. I, I guess, you know, you know as, as I'm hearing you give this explanation, it's really interesting because it also aligns with other things that are, are, are non-racial on the surface, which are, you know, why does a concept of, say, enemy of the people become so salient in the mid to late 1930s? And, and, and you know, some historians who've looked at, say, you know, the terror from below will point out by the middle of, of the 1930s, the social tensions in society on the shop floor are so the, the strife is in tensions are so great that when this violence is unleashed from above it really takes a logic of its own <laughs> you know below uh and and it's an expression of all of those social tensions yeah i think that's exactly i mean i think this is one of the earliest iterations i really i see a continuum that just begins at the end of the 1920s and in some sense is, you know there, there are balls and valleys yeah. but is driving towards that moment in the mid-1930s where 
where social and economic crisis and, the, and, and a social breakdown is in some sense producing these types of discourses about enemies of various of different varieties. And, right. and the anti-Semite uh, is one of the, the sort of members of the rogues gallery, right, that in some sense gets, gets um, directly attacked in this moment legitimately. And finally, how do you uh, evaluate the, the legacies of this Jewish revolution in Soviet Belarus well into the 1930s up until the outbreak of the war, which, of course, the Jewish population is destroyed? Uh, what is the legacies of, the, of this, this transformation of Jewish life that began with 1917? Well, in the book, I argue that, that ultimately the Jewish revolution is a failure, um, I mean, really, it's very hard to think. There are lots of. There's been a lot of research that has sort of stressed the the creation of Jewish autonomous life in the early Soviet period, and it's certainly the case in the 1920s. But by the end of the 1920s, with the turns of the Stalin Revolution, the room for for autonomous construction is vastly constricted. The Asexia, which gets pilloried in much of the historiography uh, for being, in some sense, an enemy of the of the authentic Jewish national project is um, disbanded at the end of the 1920s. Even, and it really had been the institution that was most responsible for pushing for the types of cultural experimentation and cultural development over the course of the 1920s. So they're marginalized. Different groups of Jews have been marginalized politically from the party. And really, by the end of the 1920s, after the anti-Bundism campaigns, after the anti-Trotskyist uh, campaigns, etc., the, there is, there is, the only way for... Jews to remain in the party is in some sense to um, to pretty much evacuate uh, any semblance of, of uh, Jewish national politics writ large. And, and so there's a curious moment where, in, I mean, even obviously, it's not just Jews who are being targeted by the end of the 1920s. The fact that, that, that nationality is seen as suddenly being very dangerous and, and partic particularly racial ideologies are are seen as being dangerous is evident in the fact that there's obviously the crackdown against Belarusian nationalist or alleged Belarusian nationalists against Ukrainian nationalists, etc. and so forth. So it's not simply a Jewish phenomenon. But what's interesting right. is that even in the 1930s, one still has the rhetoric of the sort of brotherhood of peoples in the Soviet context, and you see the posters of the various populations marching together. What you never really see in those posters is in, is a definable sort of Jewish representation, right? So there is a sort of multinational uh, transnational internationalism, if you will, but it's an internationalism in which Jew, the positionality of the Jews has been de facto become one where what is expected is assimilation and political assimilation yeah, above all. Yeah, that's what I was. I was actually just thinking when you mentioned these, um, you know, images of of the you know Durzba Noroda and 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 the thirties that you don't Jews as a nationality, like putting Bitterbijan aside. As a as a strange quirk, <laughs> but Jewish Jews as a nationality seem to not fit within that. They are, as you said, it it looks like they're just expected to assimilate into you know the general panopticon of or or a hierarchy of Soviet life and not have and 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 rid themselves of their particularities. Yeah, and I think that in some in many respects, this is obviously a response to to anti-Semitism outside of the Soviet Union, where the argument is made is being made by the by the Nazis and other right-wingers that, that, of course, the Soviet Union is a Jewish project, that the revolution was a Jewish revolution, etc. and so forth. So in some ways, I think that it is, it, it is a good faith attempt to, or there is some good faith that there's an attempt to, to, um, to uh, demonstrate that this is an international Revolution. It's not a Jewish project, so the Jew disappears for that reason. Perhaps I mean that's speculation. But at the other, on the other level, there is something quite curious about the fact that when when enemies are being publicly expiated, particularly in the course of the terror, when Trotsky returns as the, the sort of demonic figure, and you know you look at the sort of coverage of this, there's a way in which it seems to me that in in the terror, this is the in, in some respects this is. Um, Stalin or the party demonstrating the falsity of the anti-Semitic myth, right? That here you have Jews being publicly put on trial for being enemies of the state, enemies of the revolution, and ultimately, in through that process, demonstrating that the Soviet Union is not what the Nazis are claiming that it is. It's not a Jewish conspiracy. Right. The Jews have been put in their place. 
So even in that way, there's, I mean, the peculiarities of the, of the terror and Trotsky's and terror, that's a whole different story, which I'll you know, hopefully get to at some point. But, um, but that, I think that, that the, um, this, get, this is, of course, part of the, of the legacy of the Jewish revolution also, right? I mean, in some ways, there, there was, I think that there was, um, that the, the intellect, the dangerousness of this moment, that there was this, this potential for a sort of, um, a truly autonomous Jewish politics of a different variety that was also, in some sense, in step with the revolution. By the end of the 1920s, no one really seems to want it within the Soviet Union, right? I mean, it's, yeah. lo it's lost steam. And so, ultimately, I would say, you know, going back to the question, the, the, the Jewish revolution is something of a, you know, in the, in the grand scheme, is a failure. But, you know, as I write in the, at the end of the book, in the context of a, of a world that's emerging where political questions are resolved by increasing uses of mass violence and violence against populations and where success is ensured by, you know, dominating other nationalities and annihilating populations, failure is not always the, the worst option. That was Andrew Sloyne, an associate professor of history at Baruch College, specializing in Russian, East European, Soviet, and Jewish history. He's the author of The Jewish Revolution in Belarusia: Economy, Race, and Bolshevik Power, published by Indiana University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gilry, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. And this is what the on most of the time, aren't you, on one thing or another?